from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined's Science News Roundup. On today's program, we've gathered two of our favorite fellow science geeks to talk about how dogs evolved, what cats do when we're not looking, why NASA is going to start selling tickets to space, what cities we should save from climate change, and why it is way, way, way past time to say goodbye to all male science panels. It's the Undisciplined Science News Roundup, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Once a month on this program, we gather together a few of our favorite people to talk about some of the biggest stories in science, research, and exploration. And in true undisciplined fashion, we do this with guests from vastly different academic backgrounds. Joining us in studio today and making her undisciplined debut is Ashley Rohde. She is a PhD student at the Department of Wildland Resources at Utah State University and a reporter focused on science and research at Utah Public Radio. Ashley, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And joining us on the line from Boulder, Colorado, where she is a doctoral candidate working on the diversity of El Nino events is Danielle Lemon. She last joined us back in April to talk about new ways to measure El Nino events, but this is her first time on the Roundup. Danielle, thanks for coming back to chat with us again. Thanks for having me back. We tend to give the natural sciences a little more attention on this program, but there is a whole other world of science out there that is equally cool to talk about. And I wanted to start out today talking about a fun social science experiment where researchers intentionally dropped 17,000 wallets in 40 different countries to see what would happen. Some of the wallets had no money. Some of the wallets had the equivalent of $13.75 in local currency, and some had nearly 100. So, okay, you, you guys both know what happened. So this is kind of a bad question to ask, scientifically speaking. But I'm wondering if you can pretend for a moment that you don't know what happened. What would you have hypothesized about this study? The thing that struck me most about this study was that they didn't really have a category for people who turn in the wallet, but the cash is missing. And I think that's something that you might expect because it is untraceable. And then I thought they also didn't have a category that kind of described the background of the people that they were putting in this position. Because while there is that sense of, like, I don't want to perceive myself as a thief, there's also a sense of I don't want to be perceived as a thief. And there are certain groups of people who have negative stereotypes thrust upon them that might make them more likely to be accused. And people who are more likely to be accused of stealing a wallet just because they have it in their hand, whether they were in the act of turning it over or not, they're going to be probably more hesitant to even pick it up in the first place, right? Yeah, well, and I think the other piece of context in here, and you had to dig into the study to see it, is that even though a lot of the reporting about this said, hey, when there's no money in the wallet, people are less likely to turn it in. And when there's more money in the wallet, people are more likely to turn it in. When you look at it charted across the countries, the majority of countries where the wallet was being turned back in were places that were relatively well-to-do in the economic status of our, of our greater world. Where there was more poverty, the wallets didn't come back as much. And that wasn't factored in a lot to the reporting. Right. So when you think about the value of $13, it's very different to someone in Denmark versus someone in an African country. I forgot which countries they included. Like like Ghana, which is one of the... Right. right, So that's one one of the lower income countries. $13 is a lot of money in Ghana. 
Yeah, but $13, I don't think twice about turning that back in. Or even like maybe $100, which was the high end of the thing. Right. I'd love to see the study done with $10,000. Oh, that's a lot I of would money love to see that too. <laughs> I also threat, wanted... What's the other threshold that people are not going to turn it back in, right, no matter what? Right, yeah. Well, I also want to know how the heck they got funding for this. Like 17,000 wallets with $10, $13 to $100 in them. That's a lot of cash. It is. Maybe... That is very... Yeah, <laughs> that is a lot of cash. <laughs> so... I don't know about you guys, but I feel like my faith in humanity is challenged on a regular basis, including <laughs> by science news. Does it surprise you when a sort of feel-good social science story comes along? No, it doesn't. People are basically good. I mean, everybody faces their challenges, but I think everybody's also lost a wallet at some point. And, you know, the $13 or even the $100 that's in the wallet isn't the thing that's most valuable to a person. And knowing that it has no value to anyone outside of that person, I think, makes it easier to turn it in. It's not like it's something that you want outside of that $100, which is why I was surprised that they didn't get turned in without cash in them. You're so nice. Danielle, what do you think? Yeah, there's a. I I feel like there's another thing here too, right? Which is that if you casually believe in karma at all, you you recognize that picking, you know, the good (laughs) luck of picking up a wallet is a zero sum game, you know. So as lucky as you are to find this hundred dollars, somebody else is incredibly unlucky. So it doesn't surprise me at all that the more lucky that you appear to be, the more suspicious of you are of it, and so you turn it back in. Those bad karma points, right? Yeah, I, I can imagine, you know, if you pick up a wallet that is $10 and it's kind of more struggle than it's worth to to give it back. But if you find a wallet with $100, it means that somebody else lost $100 that day. And you might be more invested in socially just because we're humans and we use socialization to survive. You might socially be called to give that back because you know that karmically it's a bad day for somebody else. Let's move from a good news story about humans to a bad news story for humans. According to new estimates from the Center for Climate Integrity, the cost of storm surge protection in the form of seawalls for U.S. coastal cities with more than a population of 25,000 residents will reach $42 billion by 2040. And if you include cities with fewer than 25,000 people, that number rises to $400 billion. You guys, climate change ain't going to be cheap. Don't I know it. (laughs) (laughs) You do a lot of research around what climate change is doing to our weather patterns and what those long-term costs and consequences are going to be for us, right, Danielle? I do. And not only that, but I also happen to be getting a graduate certificate in science and technology policy. So there have been a lot of conversations about this concept in the science policy community. Number one, because it's inevitable. Number two, because it is at its heart a policy question of who gets what and why. And when you are faced with the size of the crisis, so not just sea rise, but also flooding. When you're faced with a nationwide crisis that way, each stakeholder is going to go into a protectionist mode. You know, I need to look out for me and my city. The challenge with that is that it can stall policy action, and this is a problem that cannot wait. 
So I actually have a lot of fear around this story because I see it coming down the pipeline. I know that it's a policy problem that is coming down. And one of the other things that wasn't reported on in this story was the problem of insurance. So the fact that you can insure yourself theoretically against these natural disasters does add incentive for people to keep moving to these places and for people to stay in these places. So I think that if we want to further the discourse about um, coastal cities and their vulnerability in the new age of climate change, we do have to talk about other policy issues like how we handle and incentivize insurance policy plans. How do we incentivize people moving there? And, and then how do we intervene in that sense? You know, that's really interesting because insurance tends to be, at least in my mind, like you think like people are being responsible when they're buying insurance, but when you're buying insurance in order to move to places that are more risky or because you are moving to a place that's more risky, that becomes an incentive for, or at least a, a, a what, like a leveling out of the dangers of being in that place. Ashley, what, did, what spoke to you about this report? Well, the thing that's always in the back of my mind when we talk about sort of that climate refugee concept, the idea that people are going to potentially be pushed out of cities or out of their homes, is the economic disparity that we're going to see there. And I think that kind of speaks to Danielle's comment about the insurance also, because some people can't afford insurance. And the people who can afford insurance can afford to potentially move to those places and then move away again if they need to. But there are some people who can't necessarily afford to pick up and leave. And those are the people that I think are going to be most strongly impacted by this. And this isn't a new idea. This certainly isn't my idea that, you know, the people who are going to be most strongly impacted by climate change are poor people. And I, I just think that that's a really difficult part of this puzzle because people who have money are less affected by it, but they, they also have more power to affect the changes necessary to protect people. So it's a, a tricky balance, and I think it's going to be an ongoing conversation for a long time. I totally agree with Ashley. There is a socioeconomic and climate intersection here that poor populations do not have the same advocating power that large corporations do, such as insurance companies, and more wealthy populations. So the cards are kind of stacked against coastal cities that have poor populations. And I think that it's time that we ask ourselves as a society, you know, who do we protect and how do we work together to protect ourselves? And if we ask those questions now, if we start asking, I mean, it's already way, way too late in the process, but if we don't ask those questions until tides are literally coming in, we're, we're way too late. Right, Ashley? Yeah. I mean, it takes yeah. time to build that type of infrastructure. It takes time to get that the money together to do that sort of thing. But it also, you know, takes an incredible amount of resources to house and protect people who have left their homes with nothing. So I think being proactive in the long run is probably economically the wisest decision, as well as just being, you know, the humane thing to do. Knowing that we don't have a really good history as a country of doing that, what this report really instilled in me is that when I tend to think about climate refugees, I tend to think about people from other places. There are going to be climate refugees in the United States of America. There are. But I mean, honestly, for me, it's hard to draw a line between people from other places and people from the United States. Yes. Because the people yes. from other places are just as poor or more poor, just as vulnerable or more vulnerable, just as voiceless or more voiceless. 
and they're coming here and we can do whatever horrible things we want to do at, at our borders to try to keep those people out. If they have no other choice, they're coming. So they're poor people, our poor people, it doesn't matter. Let's solve this problem and make life better for everybody. I wish we could just end the show on that point. Let's talk instead about human-caused evolution. This is sort of a fun story and a fun study. Researchers from the University of Portsmouth in the United Kingdom released a study this month suggesting that centuries of domestication have not just radically reshaped the bodies of dogs, but also their faces, and in particular, their eyes, which have evolved in such a way as to make it easier for people to read a dog's emotions. When I first read this, I thought it sounded a little far-fetched, but I've given it some thought, and it does make some evolutionary sense. If having big, sad puppy dog eyes makes you more likely to be chosen out of a litter by a human companion, and being chosen by a human companion makes you more likely to survive, puppy dog eyes become an evolutionarily beneficial trait. I loved this story, and I think it's a little bit of a mischaracterization to say that the puppy dog eyes make it easier for humans to read dogs' emotions. I think it's better to say it makes it easier for dogs to manipulate humans' emotions. And this is real, and I know it because I have fed my dog an entire bag of marshmallows this week because he makes puppy dog eyes at me, and I'm like, oh, I know what you want. I have heard that basically that expression lets you know immediately between a human and a dog whether you can trust each other. I think this is the starting place for a lot of really interesting science about domesticated animals because dogs are certainly not the only animals that we have been exerting selective pressures upon for thousands of years. So it will be interesting to see this in horses and in birds or I don't know, whatever else we tend to keep at home, including cats, which I guess we could turn to that study now too. Another study out of the United Kingdom, this one from researchers at the University of Derby, they outfitted 16 cats with little cans cameras to see what these cats did all day. And as it turns out, these cats are really a lot more active throughout the day than a lot of people have thought. We've been spending so much time with cats all our lives, and all of us assume all they do when we're not looking is sleeping. But they actually have lives, and they do things, and they're pretty active. Uh, the purpose of this study wasn't actually to see that per se, but rather to see if cats act differently when wearing a camera collar. Uh, the researchers concluded that they didn't. So we may see more studies like this coming up. What do you think? What do you guys think we'll see when we start watching the lives of animals through sort of their vantage point with little miniature cameras? So I think one of the probably most useful things or the things that I go to as a conservation ecologist is looking at how cats are interacting with wildlife. So as a conservation ecologist, you know, I've said over and over and over again to so many people, put bells on your cats, keep your cats inside, don't let your cats be outside eating wildlife, killing birds, they're ecological disasters walking around on four cute little paws, like just keep them in your house. And this study showed that they actually killed less wildlife than they would have expected and that there were really only a few highly murderous cats and then the rest of them were pretty lazy while they were outside. So I thought that was kind of a, a mixed message. Like as an ecologist, I don't really know where to go from there because you see the overall effect where cats have had huge impacts on especially passerine or songbird populations in some places. And maybe it was only three cats that did all that. But if you can't pick out which cat, I'm, I'm still in the camp of put a bell on your cat and keep it inside. This is going to be the starting place for our better understanding of serial killer cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I found most interesting about some of the 
related research is, number one, the huge uncertainty, the huge bounds on what the estimations are for free-ranging domestic cats. One study says, we estimate that free-ranging domestic cats kill 1.3 to 4 billion birds and 6.3 to 22.3 billion mammals annually. So the uncertainty on those numbers is incredibly large. And I imagine that having these cat cams can whittle that down a little bit more to a better estimate in terms of, you know, informing conservation ecology. You hope so, but it'd be a study or a series of studies that would have to be pretty carefully designed because I think, you know, again, because they're domestic cats and they live with human beings, cats in different environments are going to have access to different animals and, and behave differently. So I don't know. It's a it's a tricky thing. I think it would have to be a pretty big study to be able to get a good estimate of how many birds and small mammals cats actually get. And amphibians and not lizards, to, too. Not to mention there's a little bit of a conditional probability there, right? Even in the article, they say that they studied the cats who tolerated the Oreo-sized camera. Right. And if you're a cat person, I, I'd give it a solid 50-50 over whether my cat would tolerate that <laughs> Oreo-sized camera, would definitely right? Not. But it's not insignificant. You know, like I can think of many cats just off the top of my head who would just say, no, thank you. You know, the technology, um, though, is getting so much smaller and so much more portable and so much more right. survivable. I, we talked to a lot of marine biologists, marine mammal ecologists on this show, and the tracking technology that we're putting on whales and dolphins and other marine life now is really quite amazing. And what we're learning as technology shrinks is really expanding our horizons about what we know about these animals. Let's move on. We can't go a whole news roundup without talking about space. NASA announced this month that for the first time it was going to allow private citizens to fly to the International Space Station and stay there like a hotel. And I find this predictable and also really tragic. Uh, being an astronaut used to ostensibly be about having the right stuff. Now it's about having the biggest wallet. How did this story strike you guys? Well, I wouldn't call those visitors astronauts, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> I would call them rich people. So the the Russian space agency flew the first space tourist ever to the Mir space station. This was 20 years ago. So there's precedence for this. They did that over NASA's objections at the time. And now NASA's kind of conceded that this is the way things are going to go in the future, that rich people get to go to space. Well, maybe well, it so starts out that rich people get to go to space. And then the idea is that in some utopian future, everybody gets to go to space. I mean, we made this joke about elitism for this space tourism, but isn't it even more elite to say nobody gets to go to space except for these six people who have trained their whole lives to do it and, and they won the lottery and so they get to go? It's a fair point. What do you think, Danielle? This news basically means that we are edging on the era of space development. As a policy nerd, I can't help but wonder what the policy implications of that are going to be. And it kind of made me think of like, is this going to be a Black Mirror episode (laughs) in ways that we can't anticipate? Space has long been a boys club that's maybe starting to change now finally. Um, But let's talk about boys clubs. One of the worst of them are science panels, which uh, tend to be chock full of not just men, but white men hogging the stage at science conferences all around the world for pretty much ever 
But the director of the National Institutes of Health, Francis Collins, said in a statement this month that it's time to give attention to inclusiveness. That should be a primary concern of scientific leaders. I do want to give credit to Dr. Collins for taking a stand, but you guys, how far past due is this statement, really? (laughs) The first thing that I thought of was like, what do you want a cookie? (laughs) (laughs) I do get really frustrated. I I mean, how long have women been saying these panels need to be more diverse with genders, but also racially and culturally, too? And then it's like once a white guy who's been in power for 10 years says the same thing, it's like, oh, what a new idea. Like, we better pay attention to it. So, yeah, it's really great that he said that. Um, He's been in the field a long time. So where's he been? But thanks. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. I don't want to. I don't want (laughs) to. discredit or discourage other people from doing the same thing because it's an issue that needs to be addressed. And it's an issue that needs to be addressed by people who are in power, which at this point is usually straight white men. So I think he should keep doing that. And I would encourage him and his peers to continue to to try to be more inclusive. But it is really hard to give them a standing ovation. The fact that he realized, oh, this is an opportunity that I have that others do not. And it is a good and way to use my privilege to give platform to these issues. Yes, you should be congratulated for that, but I don't think that we should act like that is something totally revolutionary or radical. Or something that women haven't been saying for a really long time. Exactly. In the time we have left today, I wanted to know what research-related study or news caught your eye this month. Ashley, you want to get started? Sure. So I cheated a little bit in that I did a story on this for UPR at the end of May. So it's not solidly June, but I think it's going to come up over and over again, and it needs probably more attention, especially in Utah. And this is the issue of wild horses in our state and across the Western United States. So as you may or may not know, wild horses in North America are not wild. They're feral. They were brought here by Europeans, and they're not native species, but they are very important to a lot of people, so they have a lot of social and cultural importance. And it's also just really fun. I don't know how much time you spend out in the sagebrush, but if you're just driving along a dirt road in the sagebrush and you see a wild stallion, it just makes your day. But unfortunately, there are way, way more wild stallions and wild horses out on the range right now that then can be supported ecologically. So they're causing a lot of ecological damage out on the landscape. And there's this serious issue of what are we going to do about this? And historically, we've tried doing roundups and collecting horses, but you can't really collect enough horses to make a large impact anymore. And so the number of horses on the landscape keeps growing and growing. And then the uh, question of what to do with the horses that you do collect becomes a real problem. There's an adoption program, but there aren't enough people to adopt all the horses. Now there's an incentive that if you adopt a horse, you get $1,000. That still isn't working. So it's this this ongoing problem that a lot of different groups are talking about. And there have been lots of suggestions like birth control for some of these horses, which is potentially inhumane and dangerous because you have to capture them and handle them to do that. Euthanasia has been suggested very timidly and shot down over and over again. People really hate that idea. So it's a tough question, but it's a question that needs to be handled now because there are about 88,000 horses in the Western United States right now, and the capacity for the environment is estimated to be around 25 or 26,000. So we're way over budget on these horses. We don't know what to do with them. We're spending millions of dollars to house horses that are being pulled off the range just 
holding them in pastures until they die. Something's got to give here. And I think it's a conversation that's going to come to the forefront more and more. Danielle, what study did you bring us this week? I'm bringing you a study from the Cooperative Institute for Research in Earth Science and NOAA that shows North America during El Nino years takes up a lot more carbon than we thought. This is really, really important because remember, second to the seasons and anthropogenic climate change, El Nino is one of the largest climate signals all over the world. It changes weather all over the world. And what this study found was that El Nino changes weather patterns over North America such that the temperature and precipitation patterns are favorable towards carbon uptake. And this isn't reflected in bottom-up ecosystem models. So if we are going to be talking about climate change and we're going to be talking about coastal cities, capturing uncertainty is key in accurate holistic risk assessment. And being able to capture that uncertainty means that we need to capture these kinds of details in future models. We're going to have to leave the discussion there. Daniel Lemon, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. And Ashley Rohde, thank you. Thanks, it's been fun. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts, and we have production help today from Nick Porath. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.